Emmanuel, God with us, Christ exalted over all. Lord, that is the greatest truth of all time. Right there, nothing else touches it. Nothing else that has happened in history, nothing else that will happen touches that. Emmanuel has come. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So God, we ask you to be here with us. Please, we ask you. The one thing we would seek is to dwell in your presence here in this place. Whatever agendas we've had this week, whatever else we're bringing this week, we just lay that down in front of you in an act of humility. I pray all over this place right now, we would just be casting those cares, casting those anxieties on the sovereign God who has come to be with us. You have come for us. You have come for that hurt. You've come for that pain. You've come for the doubt. You've come for the anxiety. You've come for the fear. You've come for the the joy of the Lord to be our strength today and to save us from our sin. God, I pray you would do an anointed work all over this place today. Please be with my mouth. Guard it from error. Say what you want to say to your people. I pray we'd be so eager right now to humble ourselves under your authority of your word and not kick back against it in pride. May we see the awesomeness of the magnitude of our sovereign God who we can trust, who is faithful, and who is ready to help. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, if you agree. Say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, loved ones, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just put your hand up. One of our ushers wants to come by right now and put one in your lap so you can continue to follow along as we go through these six incredible verses today. And on those Bibles that are being handed out, it's on page 520. Page 520. Well, here we are continuing on in our series through the Gospel of John. And the series title is Life in the Sun. Now, if you've been here since the fall started, you'll notice that we're skipping ahead just a little bit to John chapter 6, 16 to 21. The last message that I preached three weeks ago was John chapter 5, verses 30 to 40. Now, why are we skipping ahead? There's a few reasons for this. One, with uh, needing to be off the past two weeks, Um, I had spent some of the time looking how to shift the preaching calendar for this year. My preaching calendar is done in July for the year, every message for every week. And I had spent time looking to shift it. But when I saw what this message was in the sovereignty of God planned out to be this week, um, it became very clear very quickly this is the word that God wanted for his church this Sunday. And we don't mess around with what he wants. And so we're skipping ahead Um, But we're going to do a quick little recap to bring us up to speed on how we got here. Jesus, in chapter 5, has just recently made some of the clearest declarations of his equality with God. And as such, he's confronted by the religious leaders who are very hostile towards him. And so after claiming he's the son of God, equal with God, now he backs that up, those claims up, with three witnesses 
that all point to the truth that he's God Almighty. And we saw this through the people of God, John the Baptist, through the works of God, and then through the word of God, all pointing to him. And then in chapter 6, in the first part of chapter 6, 1 to 15, uh, Jesus goes on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he performs another sign, the fourth sign that he's performed in this book so far, by feeding of the 5,000 men. Now notice there, it said men, all, in all likelihood, it's about 20,000 men, women, and children he fed with five loaves and two fish. Everyone say, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome because our God is awesome. Let's reserve that title for him alone. Now, as I said, this is the fourth sign that he's done. So let's get a little catch up here on some of the signs that he's done. Signs from God. Number one, his first sign that he did in chapter two was turning water into wine. And it was a sign of power, that he has power over all things. Secondly, it was a sign of life in John chapter 4, where Jesus healed the official son to show that all true life was found in him as God. The third sign he did was a sign of lordship, where in chapter 5, he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. A sign of healing, a sign of lordship. That he was Lord over all. And then in chapter 6, as I just said, it was a sign of satisfaction. Where he fed the 5,000 to show them that ultimately all satisfaction was found in him alone. And by no earthly measure. And so now today that leads us to sign number 5. Which is a sign of sovereignty. Okay, a sign of sovereignty where Jesus is walking on Water. Now, it's important we remember this truth. Why does God do these signs? Why does Jesus, as God Almighty, do these signs? Because signs from God, remember, loved ones, are meant to point us back to God. Each sign that Jesus does was to show us something more about his nature, about something more about his character. And the purpose of this specific sign, where he walks on water, was to demonstrate his deity, that Jesus is God, by showing his sovereignty over the laws and power of nature. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible right here. Now, sovereignty, some of you may be here and you're like, that's a big word. That's like a seminary word. What on earth does that mean? Let's break it down. You'll see it on the screen. Theologian Wayne Grudem puts it this way. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. The sovereignty of God is his exercise of power over his creation. It is God having supreme power or authority over all things. If I could break that down into street level today, it would simply be like this. God is in control. There's God's sovereignty broken down to its basic. God is in control. Every moment... Every step, God is in control. Now, how many of us here this morning, just like, I just needed to hear that, I'm good for like the rest of the week. That God is in control. But the problem is this, that this text points out. The problem we have is that there is no other doctrine that our human flesh fights against more than this one. The battle for who has control. 
Our human flesh rails against the sovereignty of God. Would you agree? The, I want my timing on things. I want my agenda. I don't want to do things in God's time. I know what's best. I want to do it now for me. I want my kids behaving in a certain way. I want things going the way I want them to go in my marriage. I want things going the way I want them to go at my workplace. I want my health to be what I want it to be. I don't want to suffer like this. I want to get a spouse when I want to get a spouse. One theologian put it this way. Most Christians salute the sovereignty of God. That means, oh yeah, God's totally sovereign. Uh, But we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man. We'll salute it. We'll pay lip service to it. Especially for Christians. We'll be like, oh yeah, God's in control. Really? Does your life reflect that? Does mine? Why are you getting so impatient then? Why are we lashing out at other people when they don't meet our expectations then? Do we really believe the sovereignty of God? And the result is this, loved ones. We fail to realize that the sovereignty of God over our lives is a gift to us. It is a gift to us that is never meant to be something that is shunned or rejected by us, but is always meant to be embraced for our good and for God's glory in our lives. The sovereignty of God is a gift. And here Jesus gives us two crucial truths that we must embrace as we live out our lives under his sovereignty and face the situations that will come. You ready to dive in? Here we go. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And all God's people said, Amen. That's awesome. First truth we need to see today is this, loved ones. God is sovereign over my situation. Truth one is this. I must trust him through it. I must trust him through it. And there's two areas in these first three verses. There are two areas that we are called to trust him in. Number one is for his timing. For his timing. Let's read verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his, that is Jesus, his disciples went down to the sea to Capernaum. Sorry got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. This is setting the stage for everything else that is about to happen. 
John is writing this specifically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to set the stage so that we can clue in and get a glimpse of the odds that are stacked against the disciples. But in order to get the full context, we have to look at the parallel gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, where we see that immediately... After the feeding of the 5,000, which was at dinner hour, so like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, it says he made, Matthew chapter 14, he made his disciples get into the boat. It wasn't an option. He says, you got to get in the boat, guys. He made them get into the boat and go on ahead of him across to the other side of the lake. Well, what is Jesus doing? He went off to pray. And the indication that he gave the disciples when he sent them out was that he would be meeting up with them and would come to them shortly. That's why in the back half of verse 17 there, it says, the last part, and Jesus had not yet come to them. He told them he was on his way. I'm coming to meet you guys. Don't worry. Just get in a boat. I'm going to do some business with my father, and then I'm going to come and meet you. Okay? Simple plan, right? Simple plan. But then look what happens. 18. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, we have to live in the text. Every time you read scripture, you've got to try to live in the text. Put yourself in the shoes of those disciples in that boat. The Sea of Galilee, let's get some context. Here it is. I used to live about an hour and a half from here, and it's like way more beautiful than what you're seeing in that picture even. It's amazing. The city of Tiberias is there. You see those little white houses on the one bank. That's Tiberias. And the Sea of Galilee is roughly 600 feet below sea level. It's a large, one of the largest freshwater lakes in all of the Middle East. And it is surrounded by, as you can see there, mountains and hills. Okay, set the stage. They're in this boat. They're on that. Mountains and hills around the vast majority. And this looks really beautiful when it's all calm, doesn't it? I've even been banana boating on the Sea of Galilee when it's calm. It looks beautiful. Oh, yeah, no problem. Just nice, cool little breeze. Rowing the fishing boat. Here we go. But the problem is this with all those hills. It creates a wind tunnel that can churn up water into a violent storm literally within minutes. When that wind starts blowing, those fishermen know to get off the lake because it's coming. And so here, this is what it would look like about five minutes later. There it is. That's just five minutes. When that wind starts whipping through there and those waves start getting churned up, now what happened to the nice, peaceful, calm jaunt across the lake? It's churned up. And so as such, when John says here in verse 18 there was a strong wind blowing, he's not just talking about some breeze. He's talking about a violent squall that is happening. There's a violent squall happening. And in fact, in the parallel gospel writings of Matthew and Mark of this event, the disciples' boat is described as being battered by these waves. You can imagine that. Put yourself in the boat. You're getting battered by these waves, being far out from the land, and that these disciples were like straining at the oars just to make any progress. Now, just to clear up any doubt, you're like, well, maybe they just weren't really experienced boaters, right? Was it really that? But listen, at least seven of the 12 were professional fishermen. I love how Jesus sets the stage right here. It's like, you think your experience is going to count for anything? Mm-mm. You think you've got the skills to succeed right here without me? Mm-mm. Who are you going to trust in? You going to strain those oars a little more? 
Seven professional fishermen. Now leave that team, leave that uh, pick up there. And I want you to live in the text. If you're in that boat right now, how are you feeling in this moment if you're, in a, if you're a disciple? Jesus, don't forget, has made you get in the boat. He says you need to get in there. You can't take the shoreline. You've got to get in it. Knowing he's sovereign God. He knows the storm's coming. And he makes you get in the boat. And he knows the storm's coming. And he said he would meet up with you. And yet by every, here, you're in this water, yet by every physical and natural indication, it doesn't seem very likely that you're going to meet up with Jesus because you and everyone else in the boat may not even reach the shore. You're not going to meet Jesus. I mean, can you see the disciples straining as hard as they can and hear them crying out in fear as the wind blows, the darkness falls, the rain comes, the waves batter them. We can't row anymore. We're exhausted. The waves are too much. The darkness is too thick. The storm is too great and we cannot see a way through. We're exhausted. We have no control. You jump out, you drown. You stay in, you die. We have no control. All our experience means nothing right now. All the things we counted on, all the money we have in the bank means nothing right now. All the things I've been chasing my whole life mean nothing right now. I have no control. I mean, can you see the disciples start to wonder, does Jesus, Jesus made us get in this boat. You ever done that? God, you did this. You made me get into this situation. Jesus made us get in this boat. Does he even care that we're still out here going through this? Shouldn't Jesus have acted by now? Can we even trust that he's going to come and do what he said? Here it is. Jesus is taking too long. Do you ever say that? Does that sound familiar, loved ones? God, you're taking too long. I need an answer like now. I need you to act like now. You're taking too long, God. It doesn't fit with my timing. It doesn't fit with my comfort zone. You're taking too long. Is he? Is he? Or are you just in a rush? See, don't we do the same thing when we are in the storm, when we're in the uncertainty, when we're in the darkness, when we're going through the trial, when the fear and the fatigue begin to take their toll? We ask the same questions and cry out the same things. Where are you, God? Do you not see the pain I'm in? Do you not see what this decision means for us and that we have a time frame here? We begin begin to feel as though God is taking too long to act in the situations we face and we begin as as such to doubt that he's in control and in his ability to come and help us. What is that for you right now? 
What is that situation? Just write that down on your sermon note. What is that situation for you right now that causes you to doubt God's sovereignty in that situation you're facing when you are just waiting for God to act and saying, how long, oh Lord? How long? See, and if we're Christians, we say, well, yeah, I know God's sovereign. Okay, great. Your lips are saying that. What's your heart saying? What are your actions showing that your heart is saying? Because we know the right things to say. What's your heart saying? And do your actions show it? In your job, or waiting for a job. In your marriage, waiting for God to act. What about in your health? Don't you see how sick I've been, Lord? Don't you see the pain that I'm in? How long? Maybe with your students, a lot of our students have gone home. But what about with your schooling? What about with your children? They're walking away from Christ. I've been praying for them for years. How long are you even there? Do you see it? And yet, loved ones, right in the middle of that storm, right there, with those waves pounding and the darkness seemingly growing around you and the fear gripping, God says to us, Psalm 27, 14, you'll see it on the screen. He says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Look at this. Be strong. And let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. And he says to us, Psalm 37, 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Don't commit it to your timing. Don't commit it to the way you want things to go. Don't commit your way to your comfort zone. Don't do that. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he, look at this promise, he will act in his time. It's coming. Stay in the boat. Stay in the boat. If you get out, like the disciples were probably tempted to do. Can we just jump? If you get out of the boat, you sink. Stay in the boat. Don't commit yourself to your own agenda. See, God in his sovereignty is always in control. Man, did my heart ever need to hear that these last few weeks? God in his sovereignty is always in control. He is completely trustworthy and will always fulfill what he says that he will do in his time, which, newsflash, is the perfect time. It is the perfect time timing for us. He said he was coming to those disciples. He's never broken a promise ever. He's coming. He's coming, and you're going to meet with him. Stay in the boat. He's coming. Why? Because Jesus, as sovereign Lord over this universe, always has the final say, and your feelings, emotions, and perceptions do not. Jesus always has the final say. He's the Lord. 
See, because here's the truth, loved ones. You and I, we never see the whole picture, no matter how much we think we do. God is doing 10 billion things at one time, more than that, and we see one of them. You and I never see the whole picture. Trust him. Stay in the boat. I love how John Piper puts it this way. You'll see it on the screen. He says, the strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. There it is. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us, Romans 8.28, in all of our delays and detours. It may not be when you're expecting it, but it will be the right time. And loved ones, if I can exhort you in this this morning as your pastor, always trust God's promises over your perceptions. Always. Trust God's promises over your perceptions of what you think is going on. Trust what he said. He will act. See, this is what the disciples needed to have the faith to believe and what we must have the faith to believe today and be reminded of. And because God is sovereign over my situation, loves me and is a good father, I must trust him to act in it in his timing. But I must also trust him through it, to act in his way. I must trust in his timing, and I must trust him for his way. Not just the when, but the what. Look at verse 19a. Verse 19. When they, the disciples, had rowed about three or four miles. Okay, Again, we must look to the gospel parallels to fill in some details for us. And Matthew 14, 24, you'll see it on the screen, says this. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Okay, now I gotta remind you of this. Remember when I said off the top, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. It's only a couple miles wide. But here they are, three or four miles from the land. What on earth? What's the trajectory of the boat? Don't miss the details the Holy Spirit puts in. Where's the boat going? Is it going straight across? No, 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 no. It's not cruising the shore. It's approaching the center of the lake, where the storm is the greatest, where the wind is the most intense. See, notice, notice what Jesus is doing. He's deliberately having them go into the middle of the lake in the deepest water where the storm is the strongest. They're not cruising the shoreline. They can't just get out when they want. They have no control. And notice, in 25, we're also told in Matthew 14, 25, it was now the fourth watch of the night. What's the fourth watch of the night? Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Wait a sec, hold up. When disciples get in a boat? Anyone remember? Dinner, 5 o'clock. What time is it? Between 3 and 6 a.m. How long have they been in the boat? Hours. Hours. Struggling, fighting, fearing, doubting. Hours. Is he going to come? Does he see? 
Now look at, oh, he comes. Watch this, 19. When they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Let's read that again. Let's just get that impact. Let that sift over our hearts here. When they had rode about three or four miles, verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Does that still stun you? Loved ones, don't ever let familiarity rob you of the magnitude of how awesome our God is. Walking on the sea. And you know what the, one of the amazing things about the Bible is? It's true. This actually happened. This is a historical event. Just walking. In a storm. Not panicking. Walking. On the sea. Here we see an awesome picture of Jesus making himself known to his disciples on his terms. Would you look at that picture? Would you honestly think that the disciples would have thought Jesus would come to meet them this way? They're like, he'll meet us on the other side of the shore. He's not coming to them on their terms. He's coming to them on his terms. They couldn't even think about this. But instead of recognizing who he was, that's my favorite picture right there. Honestly, one of my favorite pictures right there. It's brought so much comfort through the power of the Holy Spirit every time I see it. Instead of recognizing who he was, they became frightened and terrified. In the books, the parallel gospels of Matthew and Mark, they say they thought Jesus was a ghost and they start crying out, go away, there's a ghost. Now live in the text, live in the text. Put yourself in that boat as you look at the picture. Put yourself in that boat. It's the middle of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., It's in the middle of a raging storm and you're terrified. Terrified. You've lost hope. It's totally dark all around and you're just about out of strength. Anyone here feel like they're just about out of strength? That's where Jesus reveals himself to you the most. When you get past your own strength. And the waves are tossing your boat around all over the place for hours. Talk about seasickness. And there's a good chance by this point, you think you're going to die. And then to top it all off, if that's not enough, you see a ghost coming towards you. How would you feel, loved ones, how would you feel right now? These disciples were real people. How would you feel if you're in a boat? There's a ghost coming. We're already dead. It's a little salt on the wound. This begs the question, why 
why wouldn't Jesus just calm the wind down first? He was sovereign. He could do that. He created that lake. Why wouldn't he just calm the wind down and make sure that the disciples eventually made it to the other side of the lake before meeting up with them? Instead of sending them, making them get in the boat, sending them through the storm, and then walking on water towards them. Why wouldn't he just calm the water down and then go meet them like they thought, like they anticipated? Why didn't, here, let's word it another way. Why didn't Jesus just make it comfortable and easy for them? Why didn't he make it just comfortable and easy for them to follow him? Follow his command. He still would have done what he would have promised to do, right? Meet up with you. Yeah, totally. Why this? Because of this. This beautiful truth. This highlights right here. Even though this was not the way the disciples would have liked it, it was the way that Jesus, in his sovereignty, knew they needed it. Don't miss this. Write this down. Loved ones, God will often withhold what we want so he can give us what we need. Because he loves us. And he will often withhold what we want so he can give us what we need. And Jesus wanted something much more than for the disciples just to get to the shore. What did he want? He wanted their faith. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their faith in him to see and believe who he really was as the son of God. There will always be another storm. But what happens right here determines how you handle the next one. He wanted them to see him for who he really was, the son of God with all authority and sovereignty over all creation. Even going, I used to be a high school science teacher. This still blows my mind. Even going to the length of supernaturally suspending the law of gravity to show them. Why? Because he created gravity. He can do that. He's the Lord. I'll just supernaturally suspend gravity for a bit. Because this will help you understand who I am. If you're faithful in it. And trust me. I love this. See, in their way, you'll see it on the screen. In their way, the disciples just wanted the shore. But in Jesus' way, he wanted their hearts. The shore was just too small a thing. He wanted their heart. And even though... In these first five chapters, in the start of chapter 6, Jesus had tried to show them his true identity and his power through all the signs he had performed up to this point. The hearts of the disciples were still hard to him, and they couldn't recognize him and his sovereignty over their lives. And the truth is this, loved ones, we must understand, quite often, Jesus will take us to the end of ourselves. Jesus will take us to the end of ourselves because it's in those times that we see him for who he really is and realize that truly he is all we need. But we don't get there if we rely on ourselves. So he takes us to the end of ourselves. Question. How many of us are asking God to bring us through 
that trial we're facing on our terms. And you say, well, I'm not in a trial. Okay, how about your day-to-day situations? Do you live them under the sovereignty of God, or are they just your agenda, your time, your way, doing what you want, spending your money how you want, blah, 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 on your time, your way? Whose sovereignty are you recognizing and living under? Sovereignty of man, sovereignty of God. And if you're not in a trial, we praise the Lord for that, but here's the truth. One's coming. That's the reality. Life's not a vacation. And we thank the Lord for the seasons of respite he gives us and peace that he gives us, but the reality is the next storm is just around the corner. But here's the truth we must understand. Are we asking God to bring us through the trial we're facing on our terms and our way instead of trusting in his sovereignty and submitting ourselves right in the middle of it to his way? How about in our marriages? If your marriage is is in a place of tension or division with your spouse and the arguments and are you asking God, do this in my time, just get this done quick, or are you submitting yourself to his way, saying, God, you will be enough for me. You will give me the strength I need. You will give me the wisdom. You will give me the comfort. Help me to trust you because we won't get there on our own. It's an act of God to trust God. How about this? If it's not in your marriage, how about um, maybe you've been sick for years and you're like, i got to trust you in the sickness again. Don't you see my pain? Are we submitting ourselves to his time and way? The addictions we face, the temptations we face, parenting, schooling, in our jobs. Because here's the truth we have to remember. John Piper puts it this way. He says, he says the path of faithfulness, loved ones, be encouraged. The path of faithfulness is seldom a straight line. The path of faithfulness is not just a quick little jaunt across the lake in no storm. Faithfulness is forged in adversity that God gives us. That's where faithfulness to him is forged. Stay in the boat. Trust him. Trust him. He sees it. He's sovereign over it, and he has the power to deal with it. And we'll do so for his glory and our good if we trust him. See, God will often not do things the way you think or I think he should. And he will not be forced into meeting our earthly agenda because his agenda for us is always greater and his glory and not our own is always the focus of it. He's not going to be forced into meeting our earthly agenda. Mm -mm. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust him through it for his timing and for his way. Where do you need to trust him today? Where do you need to give that over today? And lastly, as we trust him with that for his timing, we are able to see him through each part of it. Truth number two, God is sovereign over my situation. I must see him in it. It's one thing to trust him, but I must see him in it. Here's the climax point. Look at 20 to 21a. He gets to the boat, but Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. See, Jesus finally identifies himself to the disciples after he saw they weren't recognizing him and they were frightened and terrified. And notice what happens when Jesus spoke these words. These words Jesus spoke overcame the fear. They overcame the fear the disciples were experiencing. Notice this. Look at the text. Once they heard his voice... They saw that it was Jesus. They knew that he was with them, and they were filled with what? Fear? No, glad. Gladness. There it is. 
There it is. That's what happens when our eyes get on Christ. Gladness over the fear. And they eagerly invite him into the boat with them. Now notice that truth. That is stunning. Notice that truth. His presence brought his peace and his gladness right into the middle of the storm. And it still does today. Now look at the back half at 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Here it is. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. <laughs> Did you see what happened? Miracle number two. This one gets buried all the time. With the walking on water, that's amazing. But do you realize they're in the center of the lake and then immediately the boat's at the shore? That's just a little side note. Oh yeah, the boat got to the shore. You're in a storm. You're in the middle of the lake. They get into the boat. Okay, guys, I'm here. Time to unpack. What? Yeah, just start unloading. We're good. See, here's what we have to understand from this truth. God can do more in five seconds than you and I can in five days, five years, or five lifetimes of struggle on our own. Someone needs to hear that in this house today. God can do more in five seconds of our hearts submitted to him than you and I can in five years, five lifetimes of struggle on our own strength. Immediately, it's that, that thing you've been striving for for the last nine hours on the water. Oh, yeah, I, I, I got that. Yeah, I, I, I'll deal with that. <laughs> and to get the full picture of what's happening here after Jesus got in the boat and the wind had stopped, we need to go back to Matthew 14, where it says, you'll see it on the screen, Matthew 14, 33. He gets in the boat. Look at the disciples' reaction. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. There's the climax point. This is everything Jesus was going for right here. This is it. Notice how, in their response to Jesus, in there, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What's missing from that when Jesus gets in the boat and they get to the shore? There's no mention of the shore. You notice that? There's no mention of the shore. There's no mention of having the sea calmed the very thing that they were so focused on getting, just get me to the shore, get me to the shore. Get me. Jesus is like, once I get in the boat, you're not going to care about the shore because you have me. There's no mention of the shore. There's a lot of mention about Jesus and who he is. They were in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, that thing that they were going so hard for didn't matter. Because they were face to face with the king. And they were okay. And their only response was to see Jesus for who he really was as the son of God. Who is sovereign all over, over all creation. What did they do? They worshipped him. Right in the middle of the storm. That was amazing. And that is the only right response. At this moment right here. Jesus had their hearts. He had it. Right there. Mission accomplished right here. And they didn't understand it completely, what his deity meant yet. They wouldn't understand that until his sacrifice and rising again from the grave. 
But all of a sudden, the shore, the outcome that they had been so focused on getting became too small a thing to pursue in comparison to God's glory that was right in front of them through the storm. Jesus had their hearts. Let me ask you a question. Does he have yours? In the middle of that situation, or is the shore still your greatest outcome? What's your shoreline? What are you pursuing to try to get out of that? They worshiped. See, here's the truth. The worst possible outcome, loved ones, the worst possible outcome in any situation we face is to get the outcome we want, to get the shoreline we think we want, but to miss getting Jesus in the process. Worst outcome. Because the next storm's on the way. What are you going to do then? See, getting the health is just too small a thing. Getting that provision you think you need will be just too small a thing. Getting the spouse you think will satisfy you will be just too small a thing. Getting those grades you think are going to satisfy you, too small a thing. Getting those finances you think you want, if I just get some more money, too small a thing. These are good things in and of themselves, but much too small. Let's drill down a little bit deeper. Think of that situation right now with you. Hold it in your mind. Let's drill down. If Jesus never gave you or I anything else except the promise of eternity in his presence, would that be enough for you? There's how you tell. There's the litmus. Drill down a bit more. Will he be enough for you? Is he enough for you? And uh, loved ones, our family, my family, has come face to face with this in the last few weeks as on December 3rd, uh, my wife went in for her routine follow-up appointment to have an ultrasound for our, our baby, our fifth child. And it was shown that our baby was dead after just about 15 weeks. And I remember being on the phone with her and shedding tears with her of grief and confused and in a fog and then she needed to go for surgery because the baby was too big to be born or miscarried naturally and so she had to have surgery and I remember sitting in the hospital with her and then they brought and showed us the baby got to say goodbye and at that moment you have a choice Will you get angry at God for the time you didn't have with your child? Or will you thank him for the time that you did? And will you choose to see him in that? Or will you let bitterness and anger at the missed shoreline cloud that 
vision of him and the desire to press in to know him. You and I have a choice to make in those times. And I'm going to tell you, loved ones, it's been really hard. I don't want you to think you have a pastor that's like some big superpower and is not affected by this. It's really hard. Even today, two and a half weeks later, and you choose to say, God, you, I need you to be enough for me right now. Help me. I'm in a fog. I can't think. I don't know how to lead my family or my kids. I need your help because you're sovereign and you would not have allowed this tragedy in our lives if it was not for our good. So help us to believe it. Help us to believe that you're loving God and you're going to carry us through it. And you know what the beautiful thing is? It happens. And we're still working through this. God shows up. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. I love you. I'm going to show you my mercy. I'm going to carry you through this. I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to be your comfort. You don't have to run to other things to numb yourself or just bury it to yourself. I'm going to be your comfort if you draw near to me. I'm going to give you the wisdom you need to lead your family to shepherd your wife when she can't walk. And how do you... You know, the beautiful thing is He's enough. We're in, the, we're in the storm right now. I feel like we're not at the shoreline just yet. But I will tell you this, as God is my witness, he is enough. He is enough. And we can come and still choose to praise him. Yes, I will lift you high in the darkest valley because you are God and I'm not. And you have our little son or daughter with you right now. And we will be reunited with them one day. And we're going to choose to praise. I'm going to choose to preach your word today because you're enough for me. And you will get what I need. I don't have to run to those other things. The beautiful gospel empowers our praise in those moments when all we can say is, help God, help. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how we're going to get up today. And then God comes and says, see me and trust me. And you know one of the greatest ways, one of the ways God has shown his sovereignty in this and his mercy and his love and his care towards us through this is through you as his church. I know we haven't responded to every text and email or thank you card for every meal, but I will tell you God has shown us his mercy through you and his kindness through you and his gentleness through you and his care and on behalf of my family I just want to say thank you thank you you are loved so much and God is showing his sovereign power through you and he's enough for us amen He's enough for us. You see, 
God always has a greater work in mind, even in the death of a child. The death of a spouse in a sickness, if it doesn't heal, if the job never comes, he always has a greater work in mind as we go through the situations we face, and that greater work is him. In these past two and a half weeks, my wife and I have known the Lord in a more intimate way than we ever have. As a father who takes a kid that's hurting, a son and daughter, and says, get up, I'll give you what you need for today. I love you. You can cry. I'll bottle those up, and I won't forget them. And so we appreciate your prayers. He is the greatest outcome. He is the greatest outcome. Nothing touches him. And as the disciples found out here, and as my family and I are finding out right now, he, in him, in his presence, there is lasting peace. There is lasting rest and hope and joy and protection and strength and relief. There is nothing else. There is no other outcome. There is no other shoreline that can offer this. Alcohol won't do it. Food won't do it. Drugs won't do it. You na- Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else can offer this. And when we see him, we find his strength. Our fears are defeated and his glory is shown in our lives as we worship him in the middle of the storm. Truly you are the son of God. Truly you're the son of God. I'm in pain, but you're the son of God. And you're worthy of my praise right through the pain. So how about you? Last question. What are you looking to as your greatest outcome in the situations you're facing? I want you to drill down and write down that one thing right now that you know you need to trust the sovereignty of God over. What is that for you? Write that down on your sermon note. See, getting to the shore is just too small a thing. Are you getting him? By putting your faith in Christ alone, by drawing near to him through his word, cling to it, loved ones. Through his word, through prayer, through worship, right in the middle of what you're facing. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And maybe you're here and your first step to getting Christ is to confess him as your Lord and Savior and believe that the greatest act of sovereignty of all time, he paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross so that you can have a personal relationship with him. This is where everything starts for you through repentance of faith, turning away from your sin and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. And believers, maybe you're here and you've surrendered your life to him, but you've begun to trust in other things. Pursuing other outcomes, other shorelines, and now he's calling you back to repent and rest in his sovereignty to show you that he can still be trusted. He can still be seen. And he still says, It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Kaprowskis. It is I. Don't be afraid. How will you respond to him today? Arms outstretched. It's only fitting that as we finish this message that we remember the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ through communion. 
And I just encourage you, I don't know what the Lord is doing on, in your heart right now, but I encourage you to cast whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever trial you're facing, whatever lack of trust in his sovereignty you're showing, cast it on him right now through communion as we come to the table. Remember who he is. It's to remember his death and resurrection so that we would have received the forgiveness of sin and walk in freedom and new life in him. And the two elements we remember Christ with are this, the bread which represents his body which was crushed for us and the juice which represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. But here's the thing, here's why this examination of where we're at is so important. Scripture commands it. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29 says this, let a person... Examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Don't come. This is not a flippant moment. Let examine himself before he eats and drinks. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in these next few moments, just quietly bow our heads and cast those things on the Lord right now and say, as David prayed in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart and test my anxious thoughts. And see where the offensive ways are in me and lead me into the path everlasting. And as we do that, if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you've never had a personal relationship with him, two things. One, I'm so thankful you're here. It's not by accident, it's by God's sovereignty. And number two, I'm gonna ask you just to let the elements pass by you. And then afterwards, come up and talk. There'll be prayer partners up. We want to talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus or grab someone next to you as well. Okay, the worship team's going to come up and the ushers will come forward now. And Father, as we go to communion right now, I pray this would be a time of release. This sense your spirit's at work right here. And God, I pray that we would not hold on and fight you for control anymore we would release that control over to your loving, faithful sovereignty over our lives, refusing to harden our hearts again and saying, we trust that it is you, Lord, and we will not be afraid to give this to you right now. In Jesus' name, search our hearts.